Hello and welcome to Centre Stage, a program for the International Centre for Women Playwrights, a virtual non-profit organisation dedicated to supporting women playwrights around the world. Centre Stage celebrates the work of members by showcasing excerpts of their work, followed by an interview where we can hear about their ideas and sometimes their process. I'm Jenny Monday from Charles Sturt University in Australia, and in this Centre Stage we have Lou Beckett in an interview about her play Bletchley Girls. Lou is one of ICWP's members in the United Kingdom. To begin with, we have an excerpt from Bletchley Girls. Lou's work is copyright, and if you're interested in performing any of her plays, you can contact her through womenplaywrights.org, Lou Beckett's Facebook page, or her professional page, which is www.loubeckett, all one word, L-O-U-B-E-C-K-E-T-T, dot com. Here is the excerpt from Bletchley Girls. You understand you'll be breaking war codes? Uh, Yes, but I keep saying I don't know about code breaking. We have very capable code breakers from Cambridge and Oxford here. They'll provide the leadership. You will assist. Uh, Yes, of course. And you are studying German? Yes, but, well, romantic poetry, not... Speak up. Not a lot of military words, sir, in romantic poetry. You won't be speaking to any German officers? Uh, No, sir. Of course not, sir. German romantic poetry. (laughs) Bit of a contradiction, don't you think? (laughs) Sir? Bit suspicious. A German speaker keen to join the foreign office. People are put in internment camps for less. I want to help, sir. No German lover lurking in the undergrowth somewhere? Of course not, sir. Are you a German sympathiser? No, sir. I see you sponsored two so-called German refugees at your college... Not long after, they were arrested as spies. It's true, sir, but my crime was... Speak up! My crime was naivety, sir. Hmm. We recruit Britain's best and brightest. Do you think you'll fit in? Uh... Uh, You're you're looking very pale. Uh, Let me get you... uh... No, sir. No, thank you. Um, I'll be fine. Just some water? No, no, thank you. I'm fine. This is high-pressure work. I wonder, is it too soon? Uh, I mean, your father and brother, so recent. I've come all this way. But perhaps, yes, a a few more weeks at home, I think. That might be best. Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Ich kann dies tun. Unterschätze mich nicht. Oh, I see. Yes, yes, quite right. Uh, no, no, I won't underestimate. Um, if you're sure... I'm sure. Uh, best get on with it, then. You are not allowed to speak to anyone about your work. Anyone. Yes, yes. Not your girlfriends, your mother, your sweetheart, no one. Yes, sir. Traitors will be shot. Do you understand? Yes, sir. Sign here. The Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. But if the British Empire lasts for a thousand years, 
men will still say, this was their finest hour. If we could fight the war with words, we'd win. And our little island is next. You said you had news? Intercepts, only fragments. But one from Hitler himself. Um, let's see, his exact words. I have decided to prepare, and if necessary, to invade England. Operation Sea Lion. He, he goes on to mention our hopeless military situations. <laughs> Any details? Uh, let's see, 100,000 infantry to land in East Anglia. What's he thinking? Taking on the strongest navy in the world? Well, think about it. He now has the French Navy, and given Mussolini's rumblings, perhaps Italy's as well. They're counting on air power. What's the Luftwaffe saying? Confident buggers. Listen to this. Air superiority can be achieved in 14 to 28 days. That's sheer folly. If you defeat six countries in nine months, you believe you can do anything. Any dates mentioned? Mid-August. Six weeks? Bloody hell. Just to check progress. What's the news on our supply ships? Uh, 280 tonnes of food and supplies sunk in the last four months. I can hardly conceive of how much that is. Enough to feed every man, woman and child in Britain for weeks. We've been listening to an excerpt from a radio play made from Bletchley Girls a play written by Lou Beckett. We now have a short interview with Lou, and I started with asking her if she could tell us a bit about the work we've just been listening to. I think it started with a trip to Bletchley Park Museum in um, England, and we were um, just wandering around, and I saw a poster talking about Mavis Lever and in the description it mentioned that one of her accomplishments was she had looked at a page of alphanumeric symbols codes and she had noticed there were no L's and I just thought <laughs> what are the odds of looking at a, you know, a page of random letters, numbers, and noticing there are no L's. So it just such struck me as such an intriguing story. So I started reading in the normal sort of way. And the more I dug into it, I just found the story fascinating. Uh, Bletchley Park had something like 8,000 women working there during World War II. And I think when I started talking with people, I, I, I sort of had the assumption that, oh, yes, these women were, they supported the men, they supported the code breakers, <laughs> when, which, of course, is true. Um, but there were also women code breakers, and many of these jobs were very important jobs and went on to become um, men's roles, of course, when the men returned from the war. And it just felt like women had not been given credit for the work they had done and some quite important work really at all levels because Wesley Park did play a very important part in the war effort. And 
you know, particularly the case of the two women I feature in the play, uh, Mavis Lever and Margaret Roth, had such critical roles that ultimately influenced D-Day that they were called out by name um, by the head of British intelligence, Bill Williams, for their contribution to the war effort. So all of those things put together, it seemed like a worthy story to be told. And how did you go about turning it into a play? Well, I go back and forth between a variety of methods. Uh, um, you know, when you, re when you learn about writing plays, you know, people talk about people who will do a detailed outline and then other people will just start writing and let it evolve. I do a mixture of both. I often just start writing to see where that takes me, but I'm also doing, you know, on the whiteboard um, in the office, doing notes about, oh, this might fit here and that might fit there and no, that doesn't belong. So it's a very interactive process with, I think as many people say, lots of drafts, um, lots of iterations, um, lots of things that go in the um, virtual bin. <laughs> but to me, that's, it is part of the pleasure of it in an odd, distorted way. Um, the creative um, making yourself think about various alternative ways, the creative juices, it's, it's very enjoyable. I would be happy to do it for the sheer pleasure of doing it, actually. You wrote your play and it was um, made into a radio performance. Can you tell me how that happened? Well, there were a number of iterations of this. So in 2018, I produced, the play was produced in Cheltenham as part of the Heritage Open Days. And it was called Secret Lies and Spies. And it did very well. There were um, four sold out performances and people, it was so pleasing at the end, people were coming in, no tickets, folding chairs being pulled out, put in the back. Um, and so it felt like there was enough here to really try to make more of it. And as a part of that, actually, a woman who directs a regional touring company uh, attended uh, one of the events that was related to it. And she became very interested. And we talked about doing a production in 2020. And so um, I made some revisions to the play and in we started working together. A number of people signed up, theater was booked and COVID came. And so because of that, she then came back and said, well, why don't, why don't we try a radio play? And that actually had appeal on a number of levels. England has quite a broad community radio network. And it also has, as a part of the National Health Service, there is a hospital radio network. And the people who are probably in the hospital are older people who would be the appropriate uh, at least one of the demographics for this play. And so 
it was pleasing to me that it would actually go out on the radio um, to hospitals, um, as well as the contemporary way to distribute these sorts of things is I set up a podcast. And, and so because of that, it got quite a wide distribution. Uh, and then um, a regional history festival asked if they could include it as a part of their history festival, because of course, everything was virtual because of COVID, because of the pandemic. And so it, the play ended up getting quite a wide distribution because of the history festival and because of all of these other things going on in the background. So, you know, in many ways, um, I think there's probably something, for example, just on the History Festival podcast and subsequently are, you know, something like 3,500 people. So in a, in a way, something that you expect it to have probably not much distribution uh, ended up having having more um, and it just um, the other nice thing about it is as a playwright you realize also that your work has a legacy perhaps in a way that it might not have in the written version uh, so um, it's quite nice to actually know that there's still something out there that people can listen to the production what about other plays that you've written the first official play I've written rather than all the practice <laughs> things one does in the background is there was a scheme sponsored by the UK Arts Council and they asked for short 10 minute plays and so I, I picked the play on the theme of a social injustice, which tends to be a theme of my plays. In some ways, Bletchley Girls is about all those women not getting recognized, whether they were code breakers or support people, all of them played a role. And in the case of Rotten Luck, it was a story about criminal justice in the 1850s in Britain, where the most petty crimes could send you either to Australia or the South Pacific or many different places. Again, still for petty crimes, people could be hung. And I had talked with a historian and I had come across a story of one of these injustices, but it had some dramatic twists into it. So I, I took a couple of stories, one of a man, one of a woman, a woman from about the same period, both who ended up in jail. And I told that story. I only had fragments of the story. So many things, dramatic license had to be used, but I did work with this story and to make sure it was in keeping with the times. I didn't want to exaggerate the story. I wanted it to be really true to the period. And so the, the decision was made is three uh, which plays would go forward in this process. Three um, pr producers, directors were invited to a, 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 a series where they showed staged readings of these 10 minute plays. And one of those three directors chose my play, um, the 10 minute play. And then be, the, the Arts Council funded it to become a full professional production. Um, and so it then, it got an airing in 
some people saw it who wanted it to be included in other events. And so again, it um, began to have a life after that first full professional production. And are you working on anything at the moment? Well, a couple of things. I was interested in um, sort of trying something new. I've always, I love film. I love theater. I love film. And so I thought, wouldn't it be interesting? In the same way I worked at becoming a playwright, I took courses, um, a BBC, head of BBC drama, um, not as part of the BBC, but as a private offshoot, teaches a, a script writing course, a screenplay writing course. And so that made me interested in how do you tell a story differently if it's in the theater versus if it's on film. So I searched for, I really felt I wanted a strong mentor to help me through that process. And I went to the Gotham Writing School in New York and identified somebody, Paul Zimmerman, and he worked with me. So I actually created the screenplay. Um, so it's, um, I sent it out to a couple of producers. I have not heard anything. I think it is, as I said to the, to the, to the screenplay mentor, to Paul Zimmerman, when I started working with him, I said, I realize the probability of this being made into a film is 0.0001. I said, it's not about you know, necessarily getting the film made, but it is about learning that skill. And I did think as much as I enjoy writing a play, I, you know, to me, there's just huge pleasure in that learning process. How is a screenplay different from the theater? Um, and in my case, I think I learned quite a bit, not only about those things, but I like to think my screenplay, my, um, sorry, my playwriting skills have improved as a result of the process, as well as learning a new set of skills. And is this a new story or is it an adaptation of one of your previous plays? I actually did Bletchley Girls um, oh. turned that into a, a screenplay. I just thought it had so much potential uh, um, because in many ways, some of the films that I really enjoyed over the past few years it, is Hidden Figures, for example, the story of the three women from NASA, again, who were unknown and... Um, who made a significant contribution um, to NASA space programs, um, as well as things like the imitation game. And, you know, I think the story of Alan Turing has been told in plays, um, Breaking the Code, and in film. So it just seemed it would be worthwhile to try to get the women's story told, and particularly it's a significant story. It's not, um, you know, I think they made a, a major difference. So, um, well, as I say, the probability is very low, but it's always worth a go, isn't it? <laughs> my, uh, my mentor kept saying to me, Paul kept saying to me, visual, visual. <laughs> um, because in plays, you stay on, a certain 
you know, you stay on the stage um, for a certain amount of time and you only have, you know, there are the budget realities of how many sets you can have and things like that. I mean, the beauty, even though of doing Bletchley Girls as a radio play, of course, radio already allows you to um, do things without being constrained by those sets. Um, so, you know, it can take you further afield on a, obviously a much lower budget. Um, with film, I, I think, you know, I included scenes on the film that I wouldn't have included in the play just because I thought they were so beautiful um you know from a visual perspective it it contributed to the story and it contributed to somebody who watches um the film a, a sense of time and place in a way that focusing on being at Bletchley Park you know in um chilly rooms <laughs> at, you know, that are very modest huts, as they were appropriately called. You know, it's lovely to suddenly go to a dance. It's lovely to go driving through the English countryside when um, Dilwyn Knock wants to take one of the women code breakers to dinner for a big success she has had. So it, in some ways, it gives you that visual rounded story um, that you don't necessarily get on the stage just because of the limitations of, of what you can do in time and place. So I, I really enjoyed that. And then obviously you're not just going to include something because it's visual. You have to make sure that the story has significant depth, you know, to take you there and to have something to say when you're there um, that contributes to the story. But it did, it reminded me of when I write plays, I try to um, read and as widely as possible, talk to people as widely as possible, put myself in situations where I will listen to those accents, uh, you know, all of those sorts of things. And in some ways doing the film had that same sort of feel of, you know, of rounding it out in the broadest sense of, of giving people that flavor of context in the same way that reading widely or listening widely um, gives you a context. To me, the, the key thing is I would like to encourage people who think playwriting is not something they could do. I would like to encourage them to think about it. Um, and to have a go. I mean, like so many things in life, nothing is lost by simply trying. Um, there's a lovely quote from Kurt Vonnegut where um, he describes a situation where he's talking to an older person when he's a young man. And this older person has asked him what his interests are. And he says, oh, I play football. I play piano. I act. I'm, you know, I don't remember the exact things he did, but, and the, um, but I don't do any of them very well, he said. And, and the person said, well, that doesn't make any difference. Are you enjoying what you're doing? I mean, and I think sometimes we put ourselves in this mode of 
oh, I'm not very good. I'm not very good at this. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to explore it. Well, of course, none of us are very good when we start out on new journeys, or at least most of us. There are some people with this huge innate talent. I totally accept that. Um, but, you know, for most of us, it's a bit of a slog. And, you know, we get feedback. We have lots of people um, reading our things, telling us what's not working, um, hopefully giving us a few pats on the back along the way. Uh, you know, so I think that to me would be um, the most important thing. The theater has provides so much pleasure on so many levels. And I think writing plays is yet another level that provides pleasure. So I would encourage people to, if they have a spark or an interest, have a have a go. <laughs> Thanks to Lou Beckett for meeting me via Zoom, which accounts for some of the echoes that you heard as we were talking. Um, Zoom from one side of the world to the other sometimes doesn't come out with the best of sound, but Lou's interview was very interesting and she was very charming. So thank you very much to Lou Beckett for meeting with me and talking about her experience of playwriting and film writing. And thank you for listening to Centre Stage, and we'll have more coming along soon. <laughs> <laughs>